So in a book entitled Our Sufficiency in Christ, the author related a story I'd like to begin with today and share with you. A pastor I know of, he says, was conducting a series of meetings in several churches in North and South Carolina. And he was staying with some close friends in Asheville and traveling each night to wherever he was speaking that evening. One night he was scheduled to speak at a church in Greenville, South Carolina, which is several hours from Asheville. And because he didn't have a car, some friends from Greenville offered to transport him to and from the meeting. And when they arrived to pick him up, he bid farewell to his hosts and told them that he had hoped to be back by, by midnight or so or soon afterwards. And after ministering at the Greenville Church, he stayed a while to enjoy some of the fellowship, and then he rode back to Asheville. Now, approaching the house that he was staying at, he saw the porch light was on and assumed that his hosts would be prepared for his arrival because he had discussed the time of his return with him. Well, as he got out of the car, he sent the driver on his way saying, you must hurry, you have a long drive back, and I'm sure they're prepared for me. I'm not going to have any problems. So he felt the bitter cold of the winter night as he uh, walked up the long driveway to the house. And by the time he reached the porch, his nose and ears were already numb. And he tapped gently on the door, but no one answered. He tapped a little harder, and then even harder, but still no reply. Finally, concerned about the intense cold, he beat on the kitchen door and on the side window, but there was still no response. Frustrated and becoming colder by the moment, he decided to walk to a neighbor's house so he could call and awaken his hosts. And on the way there, he realized that knocking on someone's door after midnight was probably not a safe thing to do. And so he decided to find a public telephone. And it was dark and it was cold. And as the pastor wasn't familiar with the area, consequently, he walked for several miles And at one point he slipped in the wet grass growing underfoot uh, near the side of the road and he slid down the bank into about two feet of water. Now this was the days before cell phones. You probably figured that one out, right? So soaked and nearly frozen, he crawled back up to the road and he walked further till he finally saw a blinking motel light. He awakened the manager who was gracious enough to let him use the phone. The bedraggled pastor made the call, said to his sleepy host, I hate to disturb you, but I couldn't get into your house. I couldn't wake up anybody in the house. I'm several miles down the road at the motel. Could you come get me? To which the host replied, my dear friend, you have a key in your overcoat pocket. Don't you remember I gave it to you before you left? Pastor reached into his pocket and there it was. Sure enough, he had a key to the house. Now, you're asking, why did I go through all of that? Because I'm here to tell you it happens all the time, doesn't it? We look for our glasses only to discover that they're on the top of our heads. We search furiously for that pencil, and all along it's been tucked behind our ear. The other day, this is a true story, I was running around the house looking for my cell phone, and the whole time... I was talking on it. (laughs) The worst part was that I was complaining to the person I was talking to on the other end, getting all amped up because I couldn't find my cell phone. We had a good laugh on that one. 
I chalked it up to a senior moment. But it happens to all of us, doesn't it? Frequently, we become oblivious to the obvious. And it happens all too often to us spiritually as well. In today's snapshot of an afternoon in the life of Jesus, the disciples come face to face with an experience with which we are all too familiar. It's a blatant display of how even those closest to Christ can miss the obvious and consequently bypass the blessing that God has waiting for them. Too often when we encounter a snag in our Christian lives or a dilemma in our ministry, we find ourselves in a frenzy like that pastor in the story, searching for the key that will unlock the door to the successful solution. And then we we end up banging on all the wrong doors. We walk down all the wrong roads. We trip, we fall along the way and emerge with our emotions cold and our egos bruised. And through all of the frustration and the wasted effort in search of that one simple key, we finally come to the realization that it was right in our grasp the whole time. And that the key to any dilemma that we encounter is Jesus Christ. I believe that with my whole heart. Time and time again, that picture is painted in the New Testament, but in no place is it more colorful to me than in the midst of this incredible moment with the Savior and his disciples and 5,000 plus onlookers. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, if you would. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 to 14, if we can make our way down through them in the time allotted here. The miracle of the loaves and fish. Okay, we've been doing a lot of time in the Gospel of John recently in our study uh, Monday night as well. And so these things are just hanging with me and causing me to want to preach on them. It's a familiar section of Scripture. Countless sermons have been preached on this passage of Scripture from every angle imaginable. The practical principles and tidbits of truth contained in this scene are absolutely legion, and to list them would be nearly impossible. Yet I believe that this miracle, by the way, the only miracle to make it into all four Gospels, okay, gives us a key to unlocking a fruitful life as a follower of Christ. Whether it involves cultivating a good marriage or a healthy church or dealing with insurmountable obstacles or just the pressures of everyday life, our inadequacy is solved by his sufficiency. Okay? You see, well, Russ, you don't know my situation. You don't realize the junk that piles up in my life. You can't imagine the frustration and the pain I have to live with. Trust me, I can. The mess that I have to deal with is impossible to undo. So please don't give me some simplistic, sweet-sounding one-liner and think that it's all going to solve my problem, because it won't. Well, you're right. A simplistic one-liner will not solve your problem. But the majestic simplicity of a miracle-working Savior will. He does know what's going on in your life. He knows how impossible your situation is. He knows how you feel. 
and he has what it takes to help you. Impossibilities are solved by miracles and Jesus has a pocket full of them. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone even to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having, having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Author Ken Geyer once said that miracles are the common currency of heaven. The feeding of the 5,000 was just a little loose change spilling from a hole in its pocket. As we gather up the loose change this morning that spills from the hole in the pocket, I think you'll realize that when faced with the impossibilities of earth, you and I need to know that they can only be solved by the Messiah from heaven. Amen? And that's Jesus. This supernatural snapshot points us to our Savior. The disciples may have missed it, but we don't have to. I see at least five exhortations that spill from the loose change of this miracle. And the first one is simply this. I think this text screams at us. Don't be indifferent to God's interruptions. Don't be indifferent to God's interruptions. That's in the first five verses here. Notice what's happening here. After these things, well, this is where it gets down and dirty. Let's get a picture of what's been going on. If you're going to compare these gospel accounts of this miracle, and you go to Matthew 14 and and others, you're going to find out that Jesus was grieving the murder of, of his cousin, John the Baptist, this day. And he and the disciples were en route to a much-needed rest. They had been working nonstop. Instead, what did they get? They got about 25,000 people screaming for attention. The text says there were 5,000 men. Now, you need to add on to that women and children. Some estimates say there was probably 25,000 people there. 
Think about that. Ever been in a stadium with 25,000 people? Jesus had every right to be annoyed. And he could have easily sent them all away. But instead, Matthew 14, 14 says, he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. The disciples must have shaken their heads at this move. But they were tolerant and they accompanied Jesus. All day long, Jesus gave himself to that crowd, weary and in desperate need of rest. He was busy unloading the burdens that they had been carrying around all of their lives. Toward mid-afternoon, however, the disciples realized that there were a lot of people that were going to get very, very hungry. So in their backhanded attempt to show some remote concern, they asked Jesus to send the crowd away in order that they might have time to find food and lodging because the place that they were in was desolate. Now that doesn't come out of the Gospel of John. That comes out of the Gospel of Luke if you compare Let me read to you, it also comes out of Matthew. Let me read to you Matthew 14. If you want to follow along, you can. Matthew 14 and verses 15 and 16. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something. To eat. The disciples saw the crowd as an interruption to their well needed rest, which begs the question are you interruptible? Am I interruptible? Their jaws must have hit the grass at this point that they were standing on. They must have looked at each other and remarked, Jesus, he can't be serious. He's tired. He's a little too much sun, maybe. He's just kidding, right? Do you realize how many people are out there? But Jesus wasn't joking. Jesus was totally serious. Look what John writes. He turns to Philip, who was from that very area... And he says these words in John chapter 6 in verses 5 and 6. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. This is the only recorded occasion in the Gospels where Jesus is said to have asked anyone for advice. He asked Philip, where are we to buy bread for this crowd? Jesus didn't need to consult other people, did he? But verse 6 clarifies his motive here. He was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. It was a test. What kind of test was it? I think it was a test to see if Philip and the other 11 remembered that they had the key right in their pocket, to the problem. It was right, he was right in front of them. It was a test with a twofold purpose. He wanted to test their reaction to an impossible situation and he wanted to show them what they could not do on their own 
and what they could do with Jesus. It would be great to say that these disciples had faith in God's providence, wouldn't it? It would be nice to tell you that they understood that God wouldn't ask them to do anything that he wouldn't provide the means to do. But they didn't. They do exactly what you and I do in the face of impossible situations. They froze. They feared. And they failed. They were overcome with intimidation. And that's the second element that I believe Jesus watched each of us to grapple with. This text also screams this second exhortation. Don't be intimidated by your inability. Don't be intimidated by your inability. Verse 6. This he was saying to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. For everyone even to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother said, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Os Guinness once said, quote, the Christian life is not just difficult for man. It is impossible And it is. As human beings, we are impotent, powerless to do what God wants us to do. Can I say that again? We, as human beings, are impotent to do what God wants us to do. The only means we have to accomplish what God wants us to do is Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything else is useless effort. Remember these words of a wise man. When God is about to do something great, he starts with a difficulty. When he is about to do something truly magnificent, he starts with an impossibility. What Jesus was asking them to do was an utter impossibility, humanly speaking. I think that's precisely why he asked Philip the question. Why? Because Philip was was from Bethsaida, the very area in which they were at the moment. Philip knew that there was absolutely nowhere for them to get food at such short notice. There was nothing around that area for them to buy bread. So Jesus was asking the impossible and the disciples were intimidated by their inability to perform. Jesus says, you feed them. You give them something to eat. And they had nothing. And there was no resources to get anything from in the area. It's pretty ironic as Max Lucado points out though. He says that in the midst of a bakery, in the presence of the eternal baker... They tell the bread of life that there's no bread. Don't we do the same thing? There are at least three reasons why we must not become intimidated by our human inadequacy. Number one, because it dulls our desire to help people. It dulls our desire to help people. Ted Engstrom writes concerning this. If we become intimidated by the magnitude of the problem, we will shrink back into inaction. 
Intimidation breeds inaction. Basically, we give up and become apathetic. Look at the work that the Barleys just showed us where they are. Easy to become intimidated by that, isn't it? You can just basically give up and become very apathetic. But think of it in terms of social responsibility even. Consider the amount of starving people in the world. We see the images in all kinds of media. Sickly, bloated children with rotting teeth and protruding ribs crying out for food. The graphic realities cut through to our hearts, but the sheer magnitude of the problem causes us to turn the page, switch the channel, or scroll to the next frame on our cell phones and do nothing about it. We can't feed all the hungry. There's no way. So instead of feeding one... We often feed none. How about in terms of church involvement? The needs can be overwhelming. Youth leaders, children's ministries, helpers, grief care and support groups, divorce recovery, elderly care ministers, you name it. There are so many people slipping through the cracks in our society. People often are so intimidated by their human inabilities and the magnitude of that need that they slip into a state of inactivity and they're content with that. They won't even attempt to get involved in a ministry because that's that's desperately needed in the church. Because why? Because it's just too demanding. Too time intensive. And I'm busy. So rather than trusting Christ for the strength or the stamina or the wisdom to do the impossible, they opt to let somebody else do it. But if everyone feels that way, who else will do it? You know, when we meet Jesus, I am convinced that he's not going to ask us how we voted on the gay rights issue. I don't think he's going to ask us how many checks we wrote to support a Christian cause, even though those things are important. You know, I think he may be more focused on how many lives did we seek to change by getting involved in the soul work of the kingdom, one-on-one with people. When Jesus saw the people coming up this mountain, he saw opportunities to help them one at a time. When the disciples saw the crowd coming up the mountain, they saw a ton of problems all at once. And they were intimidated by that. They were intimidated by their inability. And so they wanted to dismiss the problem. Send them away, Jesus. Just send them away because they're going to be hungry in a few hours. Intimidation dulls our desire for people. Secondly, it distracts our dependence on God. When Jesus said in Matthew 14, 16, you give them something to eat, and that you, by the way, in the original language is emphatic. It's like in the Greek language, it would be as if somebody highlighted it, underlined it, put it in italics, and emboldened it. The grammar says it was emphatic. You give them something to eat. What was their reaction? John chapter 6, verse 7. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone even to receive a little. Their answer is so American sounding to me that it's hard to believe we're talking about a Middle Eastern culture here. Instead of looking to Jesus, what do they do? They looked in their wallets. 
right? They quickly calculated that it would take eight months worth of wages to feed this gigantic crowd, even just one bite. Who can afford that? The bottom line in ministry, by the way, and let me go on record saying this, the bottom line in ministry should never be, can we afford it? It should be, is it God's will? Because where he guides, he provides. They saw their problem instead of God's potential. And they looked at the resources in their bags instead of the power in Jesus' hands. Which is odd because he just got finished healing them all. The hands that just finished healing everyone in that crowd that was sick, they didn't even look to him to provide the food. The answer was right there in front of them, not in their wallets. At times we're so oblivious to the obvious, like a person who stands in front of Niagara Falls and asks where he can find a drink of water. They were face to face with the greatest power in the universe and they couldn't see past their situation. The disciples are a picture of all of us. How often are we so spiritually blind as they are? How often has God met your needs in the past? How often? And mine. But we still have trouble trusting him for today. Our problem is not a shortage of resources, my friend. In reality, our problem is blurred vision. We see the barriers instead of the breakthroughs. You know, one small cloud a short distance away can totally shut out the sun a billion times its size, right? And likewise, our problems intimidate us not so much by their dimension, but by their proximity. Jesus is closer and bigger than your greatest problem, my friends. He is closer and bigger than your greatest problem. And you know what he says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And everyone who knocks to him it shall be opened. You think Jesus would renege on his promise? Spiritual power and sufficient resources are available for the asking, seeking, and knocking. So don't be intimidated by your human inability. It only dulls your desire for people. It distracts your dependence on God. And thirdly, it destroys our demonstration of faith. How ridiculous we must appear to God at times. The disciples had just returned from doing the impossible as a matter of daily routine. Let me show you that in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Okay? Jesus gave them that power. Now skip down to verse 10. And when the apostles returned, by the way, this is the same day that we're talking about feeding the 5,000. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. 
Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. So all these disciples that had just spent all kinds of time going out, healing diseases, casting out demons, raising the dead, they had all of this power that Jesus gave them. They came back and they were reporting these things to Jesus. Then Jesus says, give them something to eat. And they, they just unravel. They healed the sick. They cast demons out of people. Not your normal day's work. Yet now they're paralyzed by their fear of failure. And I like the fact that Jesus doesn't come down hard on them. He doesn't. You don't see that in any of the texts. He simply reinforces the basic truth that in the face of the impossible, he is Lord of all. Instead of attempting to solve our problems by passing the buck or relying on the buck or complaining about our lack of bucks, which is what the disciples did, Jesus wants us to remember where the buck stops. Where does it stop? With Jesus. It stops with him. Eventually, we, like the disciples, will come to learn the truth about life in Christ that, as one man has said, impossibilities recede as experience advances. In the face of our inadequacy, he is sufficient. Not only that, but he's interested. He wants to be involved in the process. He just doesn't give us some insurmountable task and set us off and then go his own way. He wants to be involved in it. So the third exhortation I see in coming from this text is this. Don't be insensitive to God's involvement. Don't be insensitive to God's involvement. Back in John chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Recognize God's involvement in the impossible situations that we face. And this is how you recognize that. There's a process, okay? This is the process. Step one, face God's question. Face God's question to you. Mark chapter 6 and verse 38 gives us the question that John does not supply. Mark chapter 6 and verse 38 Love this verse. He said to them, How many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? That's the ultimate question. When one of my best friends first became a Christian, I'll never forget this, he had a hard time memorizing scripture. He said his mind was like a sieve. He couldn't remember anything. My advice to him was, well... Just keep on trying because you put the word of God in, you're going to have a very clean sieve, right? But he, couldn't, he, could, he had a hard time memorizing scripture. But this is the one that always, he, he always remembered. How many loaves do you have? Now, that became a standing joke between us. But let me tell you something, folks. That's not a bad verse to remember. It's not a bad verse to remember as we face whatever intimidating situation God has put in front of us. 
What do you have to offer in the situation you're facing? That's really what it implies. Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? What do you have available to you? What do you have to offer in this situation? God doesn't want us to completely discount the things we can do, right, in order to deal with the issues we face. He wants us to evaluate our resources. Jesus said to them in Mark 6, 38 again, he said, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And they found that a young boy had the only food in the place, five barley loaves and two fish, a poor man's lunch. It was barley bread. It wasn't even wheat bread. And we're talking sardines here, not salmon steaks. Okay? John 6 again, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? They, they even knew that their own resources were meager. It's interesting that out of all the disciples, the only resources came from a little boy in the crowd, isn't it? And that less than a happy meal. Not enough to feed one adult, let alone 5,000 men plus women and children. Whether we have great amount of resources or little is not important to Jesus. What is important is that whatever we have, we offer to him. We offer to him and let him multiply it the way he wants to. What is it that you have to offer Christ? You may have a lot of resources. You may have no resources or very little It doesn't matter. Offer it up to him. The question looms before you. How many loaves do you have? You want to post something on Facebook? Post that. How many loaves do you have? See how many comments and say, what are you talking about? And then you have an opportunity. Face God's question. That's the first step. Second step is this. Focus on God's power. Focus on God's power. In Matthew 14, 18, which is a parallel passage, Jesus said to them, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me, Jesus said to them. That's where ministry begins, folks, in the hands of Jesus Christ. Bring them to Christ. That's where the healing takes place, at the hands of Christ. That's where the impossible becomes the attainable, at the hands of Jesus. God uses what we have to do what he wants. Can I say that again? God uses what we have to do what he wants. Do not despise the day of small things, the scripture says. We live in an age of bigness, don't we? Big houses, big cars, big names, big churches with big budgets. And we are constantly up against big problems in this life. Don't worry about the amount you have to offer a Christ. Sometimes less is more. It all depends on on in whose hands you place your trust. Like this boy, you may think that what you have is nothing, but it may end up ministering to thousands. Let me just give you a... An illustration of that. You may think you have nothing, but widen up feeding thousands. God can use small things. He used the tears of a baby to move the heart of Pharaoh's daughter in Exodus chapter 2, verse 6. And Moses was taken care of. 
He used a shepherd's stick to work mighty miracles in Egypt in Exodus chapter 4, verse 17, through Moses. What is that in your hand, God said to Moses? How many loaves do you have? Moses had a staff, and with that staff he performed miracles. He used a sling and a stone to conquer a nation with David in 1 Samuel 17, 50. He used a little girl to lead Naaman to Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. He used a widow with a little meal to sustain a prophet in 1 Kings chapter 17. He used a little child to teach his disciples the meaning of humility and salvation in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. He used Balaam's donkey to preach his truth in Numbers 22 and the jawbone of another donkey to slay a thousand men in Judges chapter 15. God can use a small thing to a great end. That is why Jesus wants us to know we are weak because when great things happen, we will know that they are due to his power, not ours. God uses small things. Whatever you have, however many loaves that you have, offer them to Christ Face God's question, focus on God's power, and then follow God's orders. Follow God's orders. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus said, if you you compare Luke chapter 9's version of it, Jesus said to them, go look, bring them here to me. And Luke writes that he said to his disciples, have them recline in groups of about 50 each. Very specific instructions. And the next verse said in Luke 9, and they did so. They followed Christ's orders. God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. I believe that when a person or a ministry is focused on God, there will be order in the life of that person or that ministry. Jesus' pattern is very clear here. Evaluate your resources, extend them to God, exercise some organization, and execute the plan immediately. Okay? Four E's. Evaluate, extend, exercise, execute. There was no waiting around. They did what Jesus asked them to do. They fed the crowd. They did ministry. Jesus took the food. He blessed it. He gave glory to God for it. He broke it and he gave it. 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 And And all four gospel writers record the incredible miracle in a simple few words. Matthew, Mark, and Luke said very simply and succinctly these words, and they all ate and were satisfied. That's it. They all ate and they were satisfied. No flare, no fireworks, no trumpet blast, no headlines, just simple satisfaction. One commentator described this miracle of Jesus as an act of, and I love this, I've loved this for years, an act of majestic simplicity. Majestic simplicity. They all ate and they were satisfied. 
I love that. Because that's what all of us should strive for in our Christian lives and what our ministry in the church should always be characterized by. Majestic simplicity. No bells, no horns, just the undeniable influence of Jesus Christ. A ministry or a life that faces God's question, that focuses on God's power, that follows God's order, orders, satisfies. It allows us to feast on God's abundance. The word satisfied there in the text in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is a strong and graphic word in the Greek language. It was used of animals that fed at the feeding trough until they wanted nothing more to eat. John adds some colorful detail here. He wrote that the people had as much as they wanted and that they were filled in verses 11 and 12. They were completely and utterly satisfied. That's what a ministry rooted in Christ actually accomplishes. But with results comes responsibility. And when we experience the abundance of God, whether it's in ministry or in our personal lives, we need to remember another exhortation that comes out of this text. Don't be irresponsible with God's investment. Don't be irresponsible with God's investment. Verses 12 and 13. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which they were left over by those who had eaten. Not only was there more than enough for the people, but just enough left over for the disciples to share with Jesus. Another lesson. Even in their abundance, they were to share it with Christ, right? Our God is an abundant provider. He neither wastes nor he skimps. He gives without reservation a pattern that we should adopt. They could have tossed all the leftovers. After all, Jesus could supply more if they had a lack, couldn't he? But Jesus taught them good stewardship here. He had them pick up what was left over. I don't believe God wastes miracles, do you? People that are rooted in Christ, churches and ministries that are rooted and founded in Christ will be careful with God's investment and will not throw it around carelessly or hoard it selfishly. It will give unreservedly to others and never lack for its own necessity. It will know the truth of God's promise in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. When we view Christ as the means for meeting our every need, every impossible situation that we encounter, we won't be indifferent to God's interruptions. We won't be intimidated by our human inability. We won't be insensitive to God's involvement. And we won't be irresponsible with God's investment But there's just one final thing. One more exhortation that we need to get into our lives. Don't be ignorant of God's instruction here. And here's his instruction. Trust me in this. 
Trust me in the midst of the impossible. That's Jesus' instruction. That's what I believe Jesus was trying to teach them with this miracle. That our inadequacy is solved by his sufficiency. This miracle was designed to solidify their faith, but it also illustrated the key to the ministry that they would have after he left. And also the key to ours until he comes. Did they learn their lesson? Well, there's this disturbing verse in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, verse 52. It says this, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. It's interesting that a short time later they would face a similar impossibility with Jesus in the midst of another large crowd, this time mostly Gentiles. You would think that they would have learned, wouldn't you? But their reaction is almost like a broken record. In Mark chapter 8, verse 1, In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Totally different situation now, by the way. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them will have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Hello, where were you just a little while ago? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. See, it's different. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over the broken pieces. Different number. You know it's a different miracle. And there were about 4,000 there, and he sent them away. They, didn't, they just didn't seem to get the message, the disciples. Is that just like us or what? We need to learn this lesson that we can trust him, that we must trust him in everything. It's an important lesson, so important that Jesus will never stop bringing it to our attention. He never stopped with them. Again, Mark chapter 8, verse 10. Immediately they entered the boat with his disciples, came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. You can see this setting up, can't you? And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, 12. How about when I broke the seven for the 4,000? How many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, don't you yet understand? They didn't get it. No matter how close the disciples were to Jesus, even though they had witnessed his power and enjoyed his provision for almost two years, they still exhibited spiritual blindness at times. And we're not so different. We've experienced his power, his provision and his care, even his miraculous help in some people's lives. But when the next major problem rises up, we often react the same way that they did. Resting on the sufficiency of Christ is not a lesson, folks, that we learn once and then we're done with it. It's something we need to apply on a moment-by-moment basis. Eventually, we'll get it too, like they did. They finally did get it. In Matthew chapter 16, finally, verse 15, Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He got it. In every impossible situation we face, every time we need a miracle, Jesus is asking us, not just how many loaves do you have, but who do you say I am? And you know what? He's not looking for a deeply intellectualized theological textbook response from us. He's looking for your real view of who he is. An answer with majestic simplicity. You are Lord. You are Lord of my life. You are Lord of this situation that I can't see past. You are Lord of everything that I have, the meager resources I bring to you. You are Lord. That's the answer he's looking for. That's the truth we all need. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news that people are longing for. Because when we realize the depth of our inadequacy, we will run to the Lord alone who is sufficient to meet every one of our needs. Let's pray. Lord, I pray the words of one author who very simply said these words in all majestic simplicity. And I pray that they are the words that we would all agree to today. Lord, Train my spiritual palate to long for you and teach me that you are my daily bread and all the bread that I will ever need. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen.